Well, good morning. Good morning, church. Welcome, everyone. If you would, please make your way back in. Make your way back in. Grab your seats. And as you sit down, would you please join me in prayer, asking the Lord's blessing on our time together. God, we, we thank you for what you're doing already and what you promised to do by your Spirit. Because of your grace through your Son, we pray, Lord, that you would help us simply and Lord, somewhat profoundly. Lord, we need your help, and so we ask for it. We ask for your merciful and mighty help. For your glory, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed, but there is no command in Scripture to the effect that we ought to lighten up on trusting God. There is no exhortation or admonishment or warning that says anything like we ought to loosen our grip on believing the doctrines of Scripture. You will not find anywhere in all of the Bible one imperative urging us to stop taking faith in Jesus so seriously, to just have a half-hearted kind of faith. No, no, but to the contrary, we will find hundreds and hundreds of commands and warnings and exhortations telling us the exact opposite, to tighten our grip on our faith in what God says in his word. He tells us over and over again to stand firm and to hold fast to the gospel truth. And we need to be reminded about this. We need to be warned and encouraged and urged and admonished again and again and again to constantly strengthen and refocus and solidify our faith. And the reason why we need these is because of the world we live in. We live in a world full of faith-destroying experiences. If you've lived long enough, you know this. There are trials of great financial difficulty, relational strife at work, or worse, in your home, with your spouse, or with your children, or with your parents, or siblings, maybe extended family, in-laws, you feel the weight of it. There's the experience of sickness and pain for yourself, or a friend, or a family member, maybe the loss of someone close to you. Maybe it's that you have been abused, you've been neglected, you've been lied to, you've been used. And these threaten to destroy your faith. Perhaps it's just a, a season of spiritual drought that seems to be going on far too long. You try and you pursue, but you don't feel this connection, this closeness with God that you once felt, that you feel you ought to feel. Perhaps it's persecution like the Thessalonians experienced, or persecution like many other of our brothers and sisters around the world have and currently are experiencing, and their faith is being shaken. It's threatening to destroy it. But you add to this, in our world, we don't only have, we don't only have faith-destroying experiences, but gospel-denying messages. Through entertainment and social media alone, we might find hundreds, if not thousands, of messages every day preaching to us a different gospel. You'll only be happy when you buy this, when you have this, when you can live like this or experience this or be like that. They're not just sales pitches. 
They are gospel messages, other gospels, different gospels that are no gospels at all. Telling you that this is the good news. This is the good life. And they're lies. Or you maybe have well-intentioned family members and friends who, who share their, their, their worldview with you. From their own experiences, their own desires, their own values, their own education. And they say, this is what life is all about. This is what's true. This is what's important. Without meaning to, they are undercutting God's word and denying the gospel. And then we always have false teachers that infiltrate the church. And ever so subtly, they twist, they distort here, they pervert it, they pervert it here until after a while, before you know it, it's not recognizable as God's truth and it's denying the gospel. But it gets worse. We not only have in this world faith-destroying experiences and gospel-denying messages, we have God-dethroning temptations. Not that God can actually be dethroned, but that's what we do, we seek to do anyway, when we are giving into and embracing temptation. When we give into sin, we're saying, God, you don't deserve to tell me what to do. You don't deserve to be on the throne. I do. I'll say what goes, what's right and wrong and good and bad. And I'll sit here and I'll make judgments. And so we lie to protect ourselves. We give in to greed because we've worked hard for it. And what if we don't have enough later on? We believe the lie that drunkenness is an acceptable sin because it's not that big of a deal. We pursue more fame and glory for ourselves. We abuse power that God has given us. We give in to lust, thinking that, well, this is the only way that I'll be happy. This is the only way I'll be satisfied. And so I'll make the judgment call. I'll be on the throne and say what's going to happen here. We hold on to pride and this stubborn anger. No one's going to tell me what to do. They can't treat me like that. And on and on it goes. Satan wants nothing more than to use all of these faith-destroying experiences and gospel-denying messages and God-dethroning temptations to make shipwreck of your faith. He is a roaring lion, and he's prowling around, seeking to devour you. And you add to this that the natural inclination of our still-attached sinfulness is to refuse to believe and love the truth of God's word. To resist him and to rebel from him, and it becomes all too clear that we must intentionally and actively and diligently strive to stand firm and to hold fast to the truth of God's word. That's the simple application of my message this morning. Stand firm in the gospel truth. That's my application of the message because I believe that's Paul's application in our text for today. If you would, grab your Bibles and please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text for today will be 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, but I don't want you to turn there. I want you to turn instead to Mark chapter 13. This will be our pre-sermon text. In Mark 13, Jesus is prophesying about what will be. He's prophesying what will soon take place initially first in the year of A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but will have its ultimate fulfillment at the end of the last days when Jesus returns. And he's also telling us, prophesying what will be the norm, what will be common for the people of God throughout the ages. 
And in chapter 13 of Mark, verses 21 through 23, we read, And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Nathan and I read this or alluded to this passage uh, last two weeks, but I'm reading it again because I want to ask a question from this text that I think will lead us into our sermon text. He says here, that these false prophets and false Christs will lead astray, if possible, the elect, meaning that it's not possible. For the chosen people of God, for his elect children, it's impossible for them to be led astray. He will keep them. Why then does he command us to be on guard? If it's impossible for us to be deceived, why does he say, don't believe it when they tell you these lies? Why in verse 5 does he say, see that no one leads you astray if the chosen people of God cannot be led astray? And the answer is that God not only plans the end, but also the means of the salvation of his people. And so we turn now to our sermon text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, with this in mind of what God does what God has promised and what he calls us to. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 through 15. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to take us through this passage bit by bit, starting with this first word in verse 13, but. It's a word of contrast. He's saying, unlike what I was just saying, I'm saying something different now. What's he contrasting? In verses 1 through 12, especially 9 through 12, he's speaking of these rebels who will be led astray, deceived by this man of lawlessness at the end of the age, and will be um, uh, uh, mirrored throughout the history by many false Christs and prophets along the way. And he says of them that they will believe the lies, believe what is false, they were perishing, and they will be condemned. But, he says... We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. He's saying that, that rebellion and apostasy and false, convert, false conversions are real. They're many, and they are lamentable. And yet, this is not the case with you, Christians in Thessalonica. No, it's not so with you. Instead of being rebels condemned by God, you are brothers loved by God. And more than that, he says you are chosen by God. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. See, God doesn't get stuck with his people. He doesn't just put up with us, tolerating us, because he would rather have someone and something better. No, he willingly and on purpose has chosen every one of his people. And he did this knowing all the sins that we would ever commit. And he did this knowing all that it would take to redeem us from first to last. He has chosen each of his children. But note, he has not chosen the rebels mentioned in verses 9 through 12, which naturally leads us to ask the question, why not? 
Why has he not chosen them? But perhaps we should ask this question first. Why would God choose the Thessalonians? Why did he choose them? Why the contrast here? This morning, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a a true Christian following the Lord Jesus, then God has chosen you. He has chosen you before you, you had done anything, either good or bad, Romans 9 tells us. Actually, before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians 1.4. And he did so choosing you with perfect knowledge of your unworthiness, both then and still. Therefore, his choosing has nothing to do with us deserving it. His choosing, his election of sinners is unconditional. That is not based on anything in them, nothing in us. He didn't look down into the future and say, that one's going to be impressive. I'm going to choose that one. That person's going to make a really good Christian one day. He didn't look down and say, well, they're going to choose me, so I'll go ahead and choose them first. No, 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 that's backwards. This morning, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, if you love God, if you are choosing him, it's because he first has chosen and loved you. In this is love, not that we have loved him, but that he has first loved us. And we love him because he first loved us. So the question, why didn't God choose those rebels in nine, verses 9 through 12 that will follow the man of lawlessness at the end of the age, that's the wrong question. The real question is, why would he choose any of us? Why would he choose any sinner? And the answer is grace. It is because of his grace and for his glory that he chooses any sinner. And that he does so, that he chooses any sinner is amazing in all of grace, but To what end does he choose such sinners by grace? Verse 13 says, to be saved. We ought to give thanks to God because he chose you to be saved. He chose you to be saved. Election, you see, is for salvation. Sinners are chosen by God to be saved by God. Saved from sin and from Satan and from hell, from God's wrath. His just anger for your sin. This is, by the way, further evidence that the ground and the cause of our election is completely outside of us and is all of grace. He didn't choose to justly reward some people who deserved it and just not choose other people who justly deserved the same reward. That's not what happened. He chooses to save And it's not like he's choosing to save some people who are drowning in a river or who are in a burning building and they're victims and they need help. He chose to save sinners. Sinners who justly deserve the condemnation that is upon them. God chose to save sinners. But our salvation is not only from something, it's also to something. Verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase of to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is kind of repeating and expanding on that phrase in verse 13, to be saved. God chose you, you might say, to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So our salvation is not only from the wrath of God and the terrors of hell, it's also he saved us to the goodness of God and the glories of heaven. This is what God's people have been chosen to receive. Being saved means both that we are spared hell and his wrath and we are graciously rewarded 
with the blessings of his glory in heaven. And this glory is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the glory that belongs to him. It's the glory that Jesus deserves. It's the glory that Jesus has earned by his life of perfection and obedience and worship of his Father. But he gives it to us. Wonder of wonders. That you have sinners deserving of shame and eternal punishment graciously receiving instead the reward of glory, the glory of Christ. This means that we who are chosen by God to be saved will receive all of the glorious blessings of the new creation. We will receive everlasting life without pain, without strife in relationships, without suffering or sorrow, without death or the devil, without sin, beloved. And we will receive this everlasting life with ever-increasing love and unity and, and peace and honor and joy and holiness and this worshipful communion with our all-satisfying and infinite triune God. That's what he promises us. This is the glory that is in salvation. It's a glory without end, without threat of decay or defilement or diminishing decline in any way whatsoever. And it's promised us. He chose us for this. No wonder Paul gives thanks to God for it. It's the complete opposite of what we deserve. It's the complete opposite it's what, uh, of what the rebels in verses 9 through 12 receive, that they may be condemned, verse 12. They are perishing, or in chapter 1, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. But reading those in contrast, we ask the question, again, we're pushed to ask it, ask it, What's the main contrast that Paul is bringing out here? There are some who will be condemned and some saved. Some who will get eternal destruction. Some will get everlasting life in the glory of the new creation with Christ. Yes, indeed. Some are chosen to be saved and some are not. Yes, but that's not the main emphasis of his contrast here. When he says, but, in verse 13, he's contrasting something else. Verse 10. The rebels who follow the man of lawlessness... They will be deceived because they refuse to love the truth. They will believe what is false, verse 11. In verse 12, they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And that's contrasted with verse 13, that God chose them to be saved through belief in the truth. You see, there are some who refuse to love the truth. They believe what's false. They don't believe the truth. But there are others who are chosen to be saved by belief in the truth. Salvation comes through faith in the gospel truths about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and what God has promised in him for sinners like us. And I don't know, I don't know what you've heard. I don't know what you've read. I don't know what your experiences have been or what you want to think or what you've been made to think is. The reality is this. Salvation, this gospel message is so simple that it's both beautiful and a massive stumbling block for many. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus alone. So if you have ever wondered, or perhaps you have worried about how can you can know if God has chosen you. Am I one of the elect people of God? Again, that's the wrong question to ask. 
No one needs to try to pry into eternity past and get inside the mind of the omniscient and incomprehensible one with his secret counsel. Rather, you need only to ask, do I truly understand and sincerely believe God's gospel truth? Am I refusing to love the truth or am I embracing it with all my heart? If so, Paul says, you will be saved. You need no more than this. For only those who believe are chosen and all those who are chosen believe. So the question is, are you believing this gospel truth? Remember, God has ordained not only the end, the salvation of his people that he chooses, but also the means to them being saved. Therefore, if God has chosen you to be saved, then he has chosen you to believe. He's chosen you to believe in the gospel truth, to cling to this gospel truth. I once had a friend who who loves to talk about and think about big philosophical and theological ideas without ever really grasping them with all of his heart. Um, he was kind of like the Athenians who loved to talk about and hear new ideas and, and just, just dwell upon, like we're just pontificating on these, these theoretical ideas that are really fun to, to deal with. But as he was doing some reading and some study about God being sovereign, and he, he, he's sovereign in salvation of choosing sinners for himself, he said, Yo, you know, it doesn't really matter how I live. I can do what I want. I can believe what I want because if God chooses to save me, I'll be saved. And he was sadly terribly mistaken. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the gospel. Those who are chosen by God and those who cling to God's gospel are the same people. There is no difference. The chosen believe. If you then this morning are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are clinging to his gospel truth, how is it that you came to believe? How is it that you came to believe and even to love the truth and so be saved? When all the while, your natural sinful inclination is to refuse it. Do you see, the contrast between those in 9 through 12 and 13 through 15 is not that well, one, one group is sinners and the other group isn't. That's not it. We are all rebels. We all are resistant and refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So what makes the difference? Paul says in verse 13, we give thanks because God chose you to be saved by belief in the truth, right? But he first says through sanctification by the Spirit. It's through the sanctification by the Spirit well, but what does that mean? The word sanctification um, has more than one meaning in how it's used. The normal way we use it is to think of and speak about this progressive kind of ongoing work that the Spirit makes us more and more holy, less and less sinful, and more and more like Jesus, called progressive sanctification. And that's a normal way we use it, but there are other ways that this word is used. And in here, in this text, it's not used that way. It's not talking about the ongoing effect of the Spirit's work in your life. It's talking about that initial step. It's talking about this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the, belief, in the, in the heart of a sinner. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we are all born dead in our sins. That is, we are dead in our sins, but not dead to sin. No, we're very much alive to sin, but we're dead to God. In the sense that our hearts are not alive to Him. We don't want Him, don't pursue Him. Don't trust him. In Romans 3, Paul says that no one naturally seeks after God. We just don't. So here, 
In 2 Thessalonians, Paul is saying that it is God by his spirit who seeks after us. And when he finds us, he finds us bent away from God, resistant to God, refusing to, to believe in and love the truth of God. He finds us spiritually dead. And what does he do? The almighty spirit of God breathes life into those who are spiritually dead. He removes the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. He arrests our attention and, and reorients our focus on him. He breaks through and dismantles every object, uh, obstacle, tearing down everything that would be in our way, everything that this, that these, uh, uh, um, this world, with all of its gospel-denying and faith-destroying and God-dethroning things that would come to us and how Satan would use it, God by his spirit, tears it all down. The sanctifying work of the spirit awakens us to new life. It awakens us to the hideousness of our sin. It awakens us. He awakens us to, to the holiness of God and to the justice of his wrath and to the overwhelming glory of the grace of God and the only necessary and all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. We see it. And when we see it, it's too much. It's too beautiful. It's too... Glorious, it's too powerful and desirable and convincing and wonderful to resist. The only, it is only through this sanctifying work of the Spirit that one believes and is saved. That's the result. The result of the Spirit's work in the heart of a sinner and when he makes us alive toward God is faith. The necessary, inevitable, and intended result of the Spirit's work of this of his regenerating work, of his awakening work, his sanctifying work in sinners is their belief in the gospel truth. When the Spirit sanctifies a resistant and rebellious and refusing sinner in this way, that sinner always turns toward God in humble, repentant faith. That's the process of salvation here, that God loves a sinner, and therefore he chooses a sinner, and therefore he regenerates the sinner, and then that sinner believes and is saved. But how does the Spirit do that? Like, what instrument, what tool does He use? Practically speaking, what means does the Spirit use to awaken spiritual life in dead sinners? Verse 14. To this He called you. That is, to this He effectively called you, made you alive, awakened you, gave you a new heart of flesh to trust in Jesus. How? This, to this He called you through our gospel. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He calls you to the gospel through the gospel. That's the beauty of it. God creates faith in the gospel through the hearing of the gospel. The Spirit works to sanctify the unbeliever toward God's truth through the hearing of that truth, through the reading of that truth. This is no mere natural thing. It is a supernatural change in the human heart. The evil world system, the deceptive power of Satan and the sinful flesh all work against belief in God's word. So it requires the spirit of the omnipotent God of the universe to overcome our rebellious hearts. Remember, as Pastor Nathan showed us last week from 2 Thessalonians 2, 12, he says that it's not belief in the truth it was over here, and then belief in what is false is over here. That's verse 11. But in verse 12, he contrasts, they did not believe the truth, but instead they had pleasure in unrighteousness. So it's way more complex and way more difficult than we ever realized. We don't just need information. 
or education or persuasive speech or powerful experience to believe. No, the issue is that our hearts are bent away from God and toward unrighteousness. So we cannot repent and believe in the gospel if we don't want it because we want something else instead. You cannot, Jesus says, have two masters. You, you can't love this one and think you love that one. No, you'll be devoted to the one and hate the other. That's how it works. And so again, we cannot want the gospel. We cannot love the truth while all the, time, all the while our hearts and minds are set on sin and living for self. If we're dead toward God and alive toward sin, we cannot, we will not believe. So the Holy Spirit comes like the hound of heaven to, co- to hunt us down, to overcome our rebellious hearts, a preference away from God and toward sin, and he overcomes us. How? Through the gospel. This, this is his scalpel by which he operates. This word of God is his sword by which he does battle against our sinful flesh. This truth of the gospel is the jackhammer by which he breaks down the hardness of our hearts. The truth of the gospel in the hands of the Spirit becomes a light so bright that it scatters the darkness in our hearts and creates in us a spiritual sight so that we see and embrace all the beauty and all the glory of Jesus Christ as he is proclaimed in the gospel. We see him as we read him, behold him in this book. And when we see him, as the Spirit enables us, we embrace him. That's why this implication, or the application that Paul gives in light of all that he said is very simple, very laser-focused, very to the point. He says, stand firm and hold to this truth. Look at verse 13. He says, uh, verse 15, he says, So then, because of all that I've just said, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. I think Paul gives us here first a necessary implication coming from this, and then I want to point out three practical responses. First, the implication, by by giving this exhortation to continue in this truth, to continue believing in this gospel truth, Paul's implying that the gospel truth is not simply, well, I believed that once. Oh, yeah, I, I used to believe that. No, you didn't. No one used to believe the gospel. Not really. Either you did and still do, or you never did. Because... The gospel demands, Jesus demands, from the very beginning and all the way through to the end, a total and unyielding faith in him. It's all or nothing. So the gospel, he says, is this truth. And because of that, he says, so then, stand firm in it. Hold fast to it. So then stand firm and hold to the truth because God loves you. Because God chose you to be saved. How? Through belief in this truth. Hold fast to the truth because the God who loves you and chose you and called you to obtain glory of Christ, he did so through this truth. It is the same loving God who called you through his gospel truth. It is this same loving God who will also carry you all the way home as you cling to this same truth. 
He keeps you. The God who chose you and called you keeps you. How? Through the gospel truth. He called you, awakened your heart to him so that you turn to him with a heart of love and eyes of of faith. And you say, Jesus, you're mine. How does he keep you that way but through this same word of truth? This is how he first overcame your hardened heart, and it's how he keeps it soft, yielding to him in faith as you travel this journey heavenward all the way to the glory of Christ. It's through this word of gospel truth. So from this, three practical responses. Number one, we must hear and read the truth. We need to read it, and we need to listen to it. He says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The apostles met with them, were were in their midst, and they spoke gospel truth to them. And he says, believe what we told you. And then he wrote it down in these letters, and he says, believe it and hold firm to it. Stand on it. It is a solid foundation. We don't have apostles like this who would give us direct word from God anymore that would speak to us, but we have it in this written word. By our letter, we have it. We have it right here. Don't stumble over this word traditions. This, maybe the English word makes you think of the mindset of, oh, well, we've always done this every Christmas. This is what our family does. Well, in our church, we always did it this way, so we always have to do it this way. That, that's not what he means by traditions here. The word just means that which was passed down. Paul received divine revelation of this gospel truth, and he says, and I pass it on to you. Hold fast to it. We have the traditions that Paul passed down right here, and we are to read it and listen to it. That's how we stand firm. Now, I, I know that might sound trite as though it's overly simplistic. Like you're telling me that if I just li- read the Word of God, I, I, I study this book, and I listen to the preaching and teaching of God's Word, and all will be well? No. I'm not saying that all will be well. But I'm saying that if you don't, If you don't read and listen to his word, then all will be wrong. You cannot stand firm and hold fast if you're not in his word. It's through his word, remember, that he keeps you holding fast. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says, and hearing to the word of Christ. So take up and read. But second practical response is that we must not merely listen to the preaching and the teaching of God's word and read his word for information. Like it's, well, we're just trying to gather some good ideas from this. We're not supposed to just take this in as a a way of uh, a religious duty. I, I checked the box and I got it done, but it's for faith. Remember, we must cling to the truth, not just have it come in our heads, not just have it flow in one ear and out the other. No, we are to cling to it and hold fast to it, to stand firm on it. So we must ask the Holy Spirit to continue his sanctifying work in us by helping us to stand firm and hold to what he has revealed through his, his prophets and his apostles and his teachers as we take in this book. So we need to read the word of God humbly, knowing that we need it. This world has far too many storms that we will make shipwreck of our faith without God's help through his word. So we read it humbly. We read it intentionally, reading with the intention of God, would you strengthen my faith? Help me to see more clearly and more convincingly the beauty and glory of who you are and what you promised in this book. 
and then read it prayerfully as you ask the Holy Spirit to help you to cling to his word. And third practical response from all of this, perhaps this morning you've been hearing this message and you're, if you were honest, you could not say that you believe. You couldn't honestly say maybe that you clearly understand and believe the truth, that you don't love it. Well, maybe, maybe you have other Christians in, uh, in your family. Maybe there are Christians in your, in your circle of friends or your workplace or in your church. I want you to read this word from 2 Thessalonians 2.13. It says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. He doesn't say God chose you to be saved. He says as the firstfruits to be saved. He doesn't say God chose you as among other people to be saved. He says, Thessalonians, you are the first converts in Thessalonica. But you can't be the first unless there are, will be a second and others behind. He's saying that there are others who will come to faith in this gospel truth. There are others that God has chosen to be saved. Perhaps you are here this morning not trusting in this gospel message. You have other people in your circles that are, and maybe they're just the first fruits and you are to follow. If you hear that, then hear this. Believe in the truth and you will be saved. Believe in this gospel truth about Jesus and he will save you and you will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you are trusting in this truth, you do believe in this gospel and you love it, then perhaps you are the first fruits in your circles. And God has others, others in your family, your friends, your workplace, your neighborhood, your other places where you connect to people that they are meant to be following you as the first fruits. But how are they to follow you unless they believe? And how are they to believe unless they hear? And how are they to hear unless you give it to them? Declare to them, you are sent ones, Christians. You are sent out with the message to declare this gospel to those around you. That you are the first fruits. And they may follow. And here's the beauty of it. Remember, as you declare this simple message of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is, what he has done. As you just simply proclaim it, the Holy Spirit comes and supernaturally works to bring dead people to life. It's through our gospel that he calls you. It's through the gospel. As we come now to partake of communion, the Lord's Supper together as a church, if you are one of those who are not yet trusting, not yet believing, not yet loving this truth. And stay where you are when others come up, please. When others come up, just bow your head. Maybe get on your knees and pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you sight of your sin and more importantly of Jesus. And then repent and believe. And if you are trusting in this gospel, you do believe this truth. And you've had this faith affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church. And in just a moment, you can exit to your left and come up to one of these tables. And you can take this communion element that represents the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus given for sinners. Sinners whom God chose, whom God called, whom God awakens by His Spirit. 
And you go back to your seat to the right and take it with gratitude. Because Paul says, after all, but we ought always to give thanks. Why give thanks? Because God loves the unlovable. Because God has chosen the undeserving. And he has called the rebellious by his spirit through his gospel word. We ought always to give thanks to God. Both for how he has ordained the end. And he has ordained the means of saving sinners like us. All by his grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being a perfect savior. Holy Spirit, would you work to continue to bring salvation in this place. Father, thank you for being an electing God, choosing us all by grace. May you get the glory for it in you alone. We pray in your name. Amen. Whenever you're ready, for those who should come, please do.